week's episode of Folklore, Food and Fairy Tales. As usual, our format will be the same. We will have this week's story, followed by a discussion about the story, and then this week's recipe. Any sources that I mention will be available either in the podcast notes or a link from the podcast notes to my blog page, which is also where the recipe is. So, shall we get started? This week's story is The Cunning Thief. As collected, by Patrick Kennedy in the Fireside Stories of Ireland. There is also a version with slightly more anglicised language, which is in Joseph Jacobs' more Celtic fairy tales. So, gentle listener, let us begin. There was a poor farmer who had three sons, and on the same day the three boys went to seek their fortune. The eldest two were sensible, industrious young men. The youngest, however, didn't do much that was much use. He loved setting snares for rabbits, tracing hares in the snow, and most of all he loved inventing funny tricks to annoy people and then make them laugh. The three parted at the crossroads and Jack took the one, more lonely looking. The day was rainy and he was wet and weary and cold and, as you can imagine, at nightfall, he was pleased to see one single house along the lonely stretch of road. The door to the house was answered by an elderly woman. What do you want? My supper and a bed, he said. You can't get it. Why can't I? The owners of this house, she said, are six honest men. They're usually out till three or four o'clock in the morning, and if they find you here, they'll skin you alive at the very least. Well, said Jack, I don't think that would be any worse than dying in a ditch or freezing to death on the road. So, give me something to eat, if you wouldn't mind, and a bed, and I'll deal with the things in the morning. So, the lady gave him a good supper, and he tucked himself into a cosy bed. Things weren't quite so cosy the next morning, when he woke up surrounded by six large men towering over him. Who are you? said the largest of the men, and what are you here for? My name, said Jack, is Master Thief, and my business right now is to find people to work for me. If I find you any good, maybe I'll give you a few lessons. They were quite intimidated by this, and the head thief said, well... Get up and after breakfast, we'll see who's going to be the master thief and who's the journeyman. They just finished a large breakfast, when what should they see but a farmer driving a large goat to market. Will any of you, says Jack, undertake to steal that goat from the owner before he gets out of the wood, without the smallest violence to the owner or the goat? I couldn't do it, said one. I couldn't do it, said another. And they all generally agreed that they couldn't do it. So Jack set out to prove why he was the master thief. He slipped out, went through the trees to where there was a bend in the road and laid down his right shoe in the very middle of it. Then he ran on to another bend and put down his left shoe and went and hid himself. When the farmer saw the first shoe, he said to himself, that would be worth something if I had the other one. It's worth nothing by itself. Then he went on and came to the second shoe. What a fool I was, said the farmer to himself. I'll go back for that other shoe. So he tied the goat to a sapling in the hedge and went back through the forest to the other shoe. Jack, however, was behind the tree, in the other shoe, and when the man had gone round the bend, he picked up his other one, loosed the goat, and led him off through the wood. Obviously, the poor farmer couldn't find the first shoe, 
and when he came back he couldn't find the second, or, more importantly, his goat. Damn it, he said. What will I do after promising my wife to buy her a shawl? I must only go and drive another beast to market without her knowing. I'd never hear the last of it if you found out what a fool I'd made of myself. The thieves, meanwhile, were greatly admiring of Jack, and wanted him to tell them how he'd managed it. But he said, everyone has trade secrets. By and by, they see the farmer leading a big fat sheep through the wood. Hold still that sheep, said Jack, before it's out of the wood, and no violence. The thieves agreed again that they couldn't do it. Right, said Jack, I'll do it. Who's got a good long rope? The poor farmer was jogging along and thinking of his misfortune when he saw a man hanging from the bough of a tree. Lord save us. The corpse wasn't there an hour ago. He went on about just less than a quarter of a mile and there was another corpse hanging over the road. Lord save us. Am I in my right senses? There was another turn about the same distance and just beyond it a third corpse was hanging. Oh, I'm beside myself. What would bring three hung men so near one another? I must be going mad. I'm going to go back and see if the others are still there. He tried the sheep to a sapling and back he went. But as soon as he was round the bend, down came the corpse and loosened the sheep and drove it home through the wood to the robber's house. But you can all imagine how that poor farmer felt when he could find no one dead or alive, coming or going, nor his sheep, nor the rope that fastened him. Oh no, cried he. What's my wife going to say to me now? I've lost the morning, a goat, my sheep. I'm going to have to sell something else to find the price for the shawl. Well, that big fat bullock is in the nearest field. She won't see me taking it. The robbers had been very surprised when Jack rocked up with the sheep. And the head of the robbers said, If you do another trick like that, I'll resign the command to you. They soon saw the farmer going by again, this time driving the big fat bullock. I'll bring that fat bullock here, said Jack. No violence. The robbers all agreed again that they couldn't do it. I'll try, said Jack, and went away into the wood. The farmer was about the spot where he found that first shoe when he heard the bleating of a goat off to his right in the wood. He cocked his ears and the next thing he heard was a sheep barring. There they are, he thought. There was more bleating and more marring. That's definitely them, he said. Tied his bullet to a sapling that grew in the hedge and away went into the wood. When he got near the place where the cries came from, he heard them a little bit ahead of him, and he followed them, and then a bit ahead of him, and he followed them, and then he was by about half a mile from where he tied the bullock. The cries stopped altogether. After searching and searching until he was tired, he returned for the bullock, but there wasn't a ghost of it there, nor anywhere else he searched. This time, when the robbers saw Jack and his prize coming into the household, they couldn't help shouting out, Jack must be our chief. So there was nothing but feasting and drinking and feasting and then, you know, some more drinking for the rest of the day. But before they went to bed, they showed Jack the cave where all their money was, all their disguises were in another cave, and they swore obedience to him. About a week later, when they were all at breakfast, the robbers said to Jack, Would you mind looking after the house for us today, and the treasure, while we're at the fair? We haven't had a good day out at the fair for so long. You can get your turn next day. After they were gone, Jack said to the housekeeper, Do those men ever make you a present? Ah, catch them at it, she said. Of course they don't. Well, come along with me, said Jack. I'll make you a rich woman. He took her to the treasure cave, and while she was just overawed by everything, looking at the heaps of gold and silver, Jack filled his pockets as full as they could hold, 
put more into a bag and walked out. He then put on a rich, wonderful suit of clothing, took the goat, the sheep and the bullock and then drove them off to the farmer's house. The farmer and his wife were at the door and when they saw the animals, they clapped their hands and laughed for joy. Do you know who these animals belong to? said Jack. Of course we do, said the farmer and his wife. They're ours. I found them straying in the woods, said Jack. Is that bag with the ten guineas in that's hung round the goat's neck yours as well? No, it isn't, said the couple sadly. Well, you may as well keep it. I don't want it. The couple thanked Jack profusely. They had lots of ideas what they were going to do with their ten guineas. And they had learned their lesson. The farmer would never leave animals untended in the forest again. Jack travelled on till he came to his father's house in the evening and went in. They greeted him and he asked if he could have a night's lodging. Oh, this house isn't suitable for a gentleman like you, said his father and mother. He laughed at his parents. Don't you know your own son? When they looked at him properly and they could see who it was, they were so pleased that they'd come back. Where did you get all these wonderful clothes? Oh, don't ask me that, said Jack. You might as well ask me where I got all the money. And emptied his pockets onto the table. They were really worried about where it had come from. But when he told them his adventures, they were a lot easier about it. And they all went to bed, greatly contented. Father, said Jack the next morning, go over to the squire, the landlord, and tell him I want to marry his daughter. He'll definitely set the dogs on me, said his father. That doesn't seem like a very good idea. Tell him I'm a master thief and that there's no one equal to me in the three kingdoms, that I'm worth a thousand pounds, all taken from the biggest group of robbers left unhanged. Speak to him, well, you know, make sure that his daughter's around when you tell him the story. That's a funny message you're sending me, Wiz. I don't think it's going to end well. The man came back in two hours. Well, what did he say? Well, the lady didn't seem unwilling. I imagine it's not the first time he's spoken to her. The squire laughed and said, you'll have to steal the goose off the spit in his kitchen next Sunday, and then he might think about it. The following Sunday, after people came back from the early services, the squire and all of his people were in the kitchen, and the goose was turning before the fire. The kitchen door opened, and a miserable old beggar man with a big wallet on his back put in his head. Would the mistress have anything for me when dinner's over, Your Honour? Of course. We haven't got room for you here just now. Maybe just sit in the porch for a bit. God bless Your Honour's family. Soon, one of the people sitting near the window in the kitchen cried out, Sir, there's a big hare scampering around like the devil on the lawn. Will we run out and grab him? Grab a hare, indeed. Much chance you'd have. Sit where you are. The hare made his escape into the garden. But Jack, as it was Jack that was in the beggar's clothes, soon let another one out of his bag. Master, it's still there. He can't make his escape. Come on, let's chase him. The hall door's locked on the inside. Jack can't get in. Stay quiet, said the squire. In a few minutes he shouted out again. The hare was there still. It wasn't actually. It was the third one that Jack had let out of his bag. But they couldn't be kept in any longer. Everyone ran out of the house trying to grab the hare. Shall I turn the spit, Your Honour, while they're catching the hare? said the beggar. Do. Don't let him run in for your life. Oh, don't worry. I won't. The third hare, as expected, got away after the others. And when they all came back from the hunt... There was neither beggar nor goose in the kitchen. The squire laughed. Well, I tip my hat to you, Jack. You've got one over on me this time. While they were thinking what they could make of another dinner, a messenger came over from Jack's father to beg that the squire and the mistress and the young lady would step across the fields and take a share of what they had for dinner. There was no mean pride about the family, and they walked over. 
and got a dinner with roast turkey and roast beef and their own roast goose. The squire started laughing again. And Jack's nice clothes and nice manners didn't make the woman or his proposed bride think any the less of him. While they were taking their last drinks at their nice old oak table in the clean little parlour with a sanded floor, the squire said, You can't be sure of my daughter, Jack, just yet. If you steal away my six horses from under the six men that will be watching them tomorrow night in the stable, then I'll consider it. I do more than that, said Jack, for a pleasant look from the young lady. Monday night, the six horses were in their stalls, and a man on every horse, with a good glass of whisky under every man's waistcoat, and the doors left wide open for Jack. They were merry enough for a long time, and joked and sang, and were all telling stories about how sad it was that the poor fellow wouldn't get to win the squire's daughter. But the small hours crept on, and the whisky lost its power, and they began to shiver and wish it was morning. A miserable old lady, with half a dozen bags around her, and a beard half an inch long on her chin, came to the door. Ah, then, she said, would you let me in, allow me a whisk of straw in the corner, and life's frozen out of me. I couldn't see any harm in that, and she made herself as snug as she could. They soon saw her pull out a big black bottle from her bag and take a drink. She coughed and smacked her lips in enjoyment, and seemed more comfortable, and the men couldn't take their eyes off that bottle. Oh, gentlemen, she said, I'd offer you a drop of this, but you might think it's a bit too forward. Forward be down, said the one. We'll take it, and thank you. So she gave them the bottle, and they all passed it round, and the last man had manners to leave half a glass in the bottom for the old woman. They all thanked her and said it was the best drop of whisky that ever passed their mouths. Ah, oh, thank you, said she. It's just me that's pleased to show you how I value your kindness in giving me shelter. I'm not without another bottle, and you might pass it around while I finish what that decent man has left me. Well, they drank out of the other bottle, and that only gave them a relish for some more. And by the time the last man had got to the bottom, the first man was dead asleep in the saddle, for the second bottle had a sleepy posset mixed with a whisky. The beggar woman lifted each man down, laid him in a manger or under the manger, all snug and warm in the straw, then drew a stocking over every horse's hoof and led them away without any noise to one of Jack's father's outhouses. The first thing the squire saw next morning was Jack riding up the avenue, five horses stepping after the one he rode. Oh, damn it, Jack, he said. And damn the numbskulls that let you outwit them. He went out to the stable, and didn't the poor fellows look ashamed of themselves when they could be woken up eventually? After all, said the squire when they were sitting at breakfast, it wasn't a great thing to outwit such idiots. I'll be riding out on the common from one till three today, and if you can steal my horse from under me, I'll say you deserve to be my son-in-law. I'd do more than that, said Jack, for my honour, if there was no love at all in the matter. And the young lady blushed and hid her face. Well, the squire kept riding about and riding about until he was tired. Still no sign of Jack. He was thinking of going home at last, and what should he see but one of his servants running from the house as if he was mad. Oh, master, he said, as far as he could be heard, run home and see the poor mistress alive. I'm running for the doctor. She fell down two flights of stairs, and her neck or her hips or both or her arms are broken, and she's speechless. Get home as fast as you can. But hadn't you better take the horse, said the squire, absolutely terrified and worried. It's a mile and a half to the doctor's. Oh, whatever you like, master. I can't believe I see the day. Just stop chatting and go. Take the horse and just go. Oh, and he ran home. He was so worried, absolutely panicked. 
and he flew into the hall and then looked around and there was no noise and no fuss and no bother. And he went into the parlour and his daughter and his wife were there and they just looked at him as if to say, have you run mad? The squire caught his breath and when he could speak said, what's this? Aren't you hurt? Didn't you fall down the stairs? What's happened? Nothing's happened, said his wife and child, since she rode out. What did you do with the horse? Well, no one could describe the state he was in for about a quarter of an hour. Between the joy that his wife was unhurt and how angry he was with Jack and so annoyed with being tricked, he saw the beast coming up the avenue, with Jack in the stable with his feet in the stirrup leathers. The servant, sensibly, did not make an appearance for about a week. But what did he care? He had ten golden guineas from Jack. That was horrible, said the squire. I never quite forgive you for the shock you gave me. But then I've been so happy ever since that I think I'll give you just one more go. And if you take away the sheep from under my wife and myself tonight, the marriage can take place tomorrow. Well, I'll try, said Jack. But if you keep my bride from me any longer, I'll steal her away as if you, even if she was minded by fiery dragons. I mean, this was a little bit over the top, but he was getting quite annoyed by now. That night, when the squire and his wife were in bed and the moon was shining in through the window, he saw a head rising over the sill to have a peep and then bobbing back down again. That's Jack, said the squire. I'll astonish him a bit. And he pointed his gun at the lower pane. My dear, said his wife, surely you wouldn't shoot the brave fellow. Oh, I would do that, said the squire. There's nothing but powder in it. Up went the head, bang went the gun, down dropped the body, and a great huge bang was heard on the gravel walk. Oh no, said the lady, poor Jack's killed or disabled for life. I hope not, said the squire, and down the stairs he ran. He didn't shut the door, but opened the gate and ran into the garden. His wife heard his voice at the room door before he could be under the window and back as she thought. Wife, he said from the door, the sheet, the sheet. He's not killed, I hope, but he's bleeding like a pig. I must wipe it away as well as I can and get someone to carry him in with me. She pulled it off the bed and threw it to him. Down he ran like lightning, and he had hardly time to be in the garden when he was back, and this time he came back in his shirt as he went out. Oh, damn it, said Jack, he said, for an arrant rogue. Arrant rogue, she said. Isn't the poor fellow all cut and bruised? I wouldn't care if he was. What do you think was bobbing up and down at the window and thrown down so heavy onto the pavement? A man's clothes stuffed with straw and a couple of stones. What did you want with a sheet then, just now, to wipe his blood if he's only a man of straw? Didn't ask for a sheet. Well, whether you wanted it or not, I threw it to you, and you were standing outside the door. Oh, Jack, said the squire. There's no use trying to outwit you. We'll have to do without a sheet for one night. We'll have the marriage tomorrow to get ourselves out of trouble. So, married they were, and Jack turned out to be a very good husband. And the squire and his lady were never tired of praising their son-in-law, the cunning thief. And that is the end of my tale. And I hope it pleased you, gentle listener, for it had no other purpose. If you're just here for the story, now would be a good time to leave us. But if you'd like to know some more about the history of the story, some more food history, and a little bit of information about today's recipe, then please stay with me. So, to today's tale... I felt we would do a story about a lovable rogue after what I've just realised it's quite a long run of excellent, clever women making their own happy endings with their skills and wit. Just a little fate thrown in. These are stories, after all. The Cunning Thief is an Irish folk tale that has many variations, 
most notably in Norway's The Master Thief or Scotland's The Tale of the Shifty Lad or The Widow's Son. Not the same tale as I told in a recent episode, despite the title. There's even an American folktale set in the Deep South that presumably travelled over with Irish immigrants and changed as it travelled. This Irish tale was collected by a Dublin bookseller by the name of Patrick Kennedy and was then included in Joseph Jacob's more Celtic fairy tales. The Norwegian tale is very similar in content, but not in tone. The Irish tale is told in a light-hearted fashion, and Jack is more hero than anti-hero. Jack likes trickery, but is rarely cruel and usually very generous. Much is made of the fact that he only stole from those who deserved it, well, you know, robbers, or as part of a trick. The idea is planted that he only really wanted to make his fortune with an end to marrying the squire's daughter. He's a rogue rather than a villain, an important distinction. The story ends with his new parents-in-law being proud of him and his accomplishments. The Scottish tale is much grimmer, before pardon the fairy tale pun, and then the Irish version. The widow's son is definitely a villain, killing many people and definitely fulfilling the legal definition of theft, that of the intention to permanently deprive the owner, unlike Jack and the master thief in Norway. Although the Scottish lad wins the princess, he still dies at the end, exactly as predicted by his mother. His death is unavoidable, as the world of fairy tales will not allow the villain to remain unpunished. The American tale is almost a melding of the two. The American Jack definitely steals in the way of the Scottish tale, and intends to keep the profits of his nefarious doings. However, he is the underdog, and only steals and gets one over on the wealthy landowner, so his status of hero is kept intact. He is another rogue, if not so lovable as our Irish Jack. The sheep killing and grave robbing are frankly quite difficult to overlook. This is very much in the tradition of American Jack tales. There are scholars who believe that all of these stories come from a story by Herodotus, included in the Histories of Herodotus, which was published in 430 BCE. I'm not entirely sure I'm pronouncing Herodotus correctly, but I can spell it, so that's a start. The robbers in this case are the sons of a builder, who creates a storm for the pharaoh to keep his treasures in, as a secret entrance that he only reveals to his sons, and definitely not to the pharaoh. There are enough similarities, including using the arm of a dead man to escape, that you could definitely make a case. This story is Egyptian, as told by Herodotus, but it is suggested that this was originally a Greek story, which was assimilated by the Egyptians and then told back to Herodotus. There was much trading history between the nations, as Egypt was rich in food, but poor in money, and ancient Greece had the opposite problem. But to come back to our story, it's not structured quite the same way as many other fairy tales, as Jack actually has to complete four challenges to win his bride, rather than the traditional three. He's the youngest brother of three, but nothing has ever heard of his elder brothers after they first set out on their journey, which again is unusual. We'll just have to assume that all went well with them. There's also a dearth of any traditional helpers in the forms of magical animals or little old women who have all the important answers. This is a local rural tale, really, the story of a local boy made good. Jack doesn't travel very far, and his achievements are definitely his own. There are no kings or princesses or royalty of any kind in this tale. The only mythical elements that are mentioned are fiery dragons. And that's very much hyperbole on Jack's part. I suppose you could argue that the sleeping posset is slightly mystical, but really it was a fairly common herbal remedy in a time before sleeping tablets. Streeping draughts were often made from chamomile, rose water, lettuce seeds and white poppy seeds, or sometimes even scarier plants like hemlock or mandrake. They'd make you sleep, but maybe sometimes too long. A posset was usually milk mixed with the alcohol of your choice and spices and herbs, but in this instance it's likely just to be the herb-spice mixture, as I'm sure even half-asleep guards would have noticed milk in their whiskey. 
As best becomes the themes of the story, the foods in this tale are celebratory foods of a rural community, not those of a royal court. It must also have been autumn, judging by the foods. Goose is definitely in season from September onwards, and beef was more common in autumn, when some cattle were soon to be surplus to requirements over winter. Beef was eaten more by the wealthier classes in Ireland, so the fact that Jack and his parents have it to serve to the squire is suggestive of his new wealthy status. A goose was a Sunday bird, rather than a weekday dish, and would have been cooked on a spit over the fire, with the fat and juices being collected, to make it into gravy for the meat. There is a recipe from the form of curry in 1390, which suggests stuffing the bird with quinces, pears, grapes, garlic, sage, parsley, hyssop and savoury, and then roasting it and collecting the juices. The goose is then jointed. The juices and stuffing are then added to a rich stock, flavoured with powdered galangal, a type of ginger, salt and powdered sweet spices, cinnamon, mace and cloves, and simmer together. Wine is added if necessary to thin the sauce, and then served with a roasted goose. I don't know about you, but I can totally taste this. These recipes were apparently from the household of Richard III, so probably not your average household, but it does give an indication. Pears, quinces and apples, and the above-mentioned herbs, were seasonal around the same time as goose, so it's not unlikely they would have been cooked with goose in slightly less noble households. Very similar recipes for sauce madame were still appearing 80 years later in books. Things start to change from the 16th century, where apples and barberries start to replace the quinces and pears in the sauce, and by 1623, in The Complete Housewife by G. Markham, all the herbs and spices have dwindled to just a little cinnamon and sugar. There is suggestion also that onion could be added, and that the stuffing could consist of oatmeal and shredded onions, which would be let down after cooking with verjuice and fresh herbs to make a sauce. That's a fairly big change in 230 years. It all gets slightly sadder as time goes by, and in The Complete Housewife by E. Smith in 1773, the goose just has a sage and onion stuffing, served with a dish of apple sauce and a gravy made by mixing the cooked stuffing with red wine. How far the mighty goose has fallen. Things do slightly improve by 1860, where Eliza Acton suggests a similar treatment to the above, but also considers adding fruit in the form of apple back to the stuffing. She also suggests stuffing the goose with mashed potato, which obviously wasn't an option in 1390. Potato stuffing in goose actually is delicious, even if it doesn't compare to the majesty of the 1390 recipe. Which is lucky, as today's recipe is actually for that very dish. I've only ever cooked goose once, and it was fantastic, but a lot of work. What I can suggest is if you attempt this recipe, learn from my experience, and please do it in stages, and don't under any circumstances cook it on New Year's Day with a monumental hangover. New Year's Day is obviously fine if you don't imbibe to excess the night before. This is a wonderful recipe. The stuffing contains both mashed potato and cooked apple, much in the style of Himmel und Erde, the German name for apples and potatoes mashed together, which is often served at a festive time. There are also prunes soaked in tea, or you could take them in brandy. It's completely up to you. There's also a proper gravy as part of this recipe, which again can definitely be made the day before. This is an expensive, luxurious dish. It's definitely something you'd want for a celebration. But if you want to celebrate and you're looking for something a bit different, this might be the recipe for you. It's definitely the bird for smaller groups of people, which might just be perfect for these times when sadly larger groups might not be permitted. And that brings us to an end of this week's episode. If you'd like to rate or review the podcast, wherever you get your podcasts from, that'll be really helpful. It helps other people to find the podcast. 
if you'd like to get in touch. I'm on Twitter and Instagram as Fairy Tales Food. Or you can visit my blog at www.hestierskitchen.co.uk where you can comment directly on the episodes. I hope you'll be back again soon and thank you for listening to this week's episode of Folklore, Food and Fairy Tales. <laughs>